This is Rabbi Sharon Brous, Rabbi Yadi Kar, where we're dedicated to reinvigorating Jewish community, ritual, and learning, all while laying the foundation for a just and loving society. You're listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our teachings, our guest speakers, basically anything we think worth hearing that we can capture and stream, you can listen to right here. The whole Megillah. I mean, literally, the whole Megillah. So thank you so much for being with us. So I'm so... Uh... I'm so grateful and eager to hear from our speakers tonight. I want to share um, that this week marks the seventh yard site, seven years since the mass shooting terror attack at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. And many of us were here when it happened. We were here the Shabbos after it happened. Um, We were upstairs. I don't know if folks remember. We were on the rooftop for a Friday night davening was absolutely devastating. We talked about guns and God and gays and what it meant to be a faith community that would really be committed to centering the voices that so many people were trying so hard to wipe out. And tonight, Pride Shabbat is one of the many moments in the course of the year in which we will continue to lift up and to celebrate and to learn from precisely those voices that are in danger in this country of being most marginalized in our time. And so I just want to express my gratitude to the folks who are speaking tonight, to Nico, who's going to be guiding us through this and emceeing. Um, Nico Lasarelli just came back from a year of study in Israel. Um, and has been a beloved member of our community since he came to Los Angeles. He's an incredibly talented musician and also just a truly decent and just and loving human. And it's an incredible gift to get to have you in our community as you go through this journey of rabbinical school. And he's the perfect person to guide us in this conversation tonight. So I'm grateful for our speakers. I'm grateful for Nico. I'm grateful for our amazing team Um, for putting this beautiful dinner together. And thank you, Nick, behind the scenes here. And to all of our wondrous people in the kitchen and maintenance team and security, I'm grateful to live in a city and in a time in which the dignity of every one of us can be lifted up with love. And I'm grateful that we've collectively built a faith community in which we're able to really lead with our most foundational values. And so I thank you all for being part of the celebration with us tonight. And Nico, I turn it over to you. Thank you. Wow, that was, that, that, that was amazing. That was amazing words. Thank you so much. Uh, Shabbat shalom. And Pride Sameach. Pride Sameach. So it is Pride Shabbat. And this Pride Shabbat just so happens to line up with Parshat Shalach, which uh, tells the story of the spies being commanded to go into the land and to search it out and come back with a report. Come back to tell, if uh, tell us if the land is good, tell us if the land is bad, tell us if the uh, towns are open, if they're fortified, whether the people who dwell there are strong or weak. And they go out to the field, they do what they're told, and they come back full of fear, saying, we, we're like 
grasshoppers in our own eyes, and, and we must have looked like grasshoppers to them. And that's to say, we, we don't stand a chance, guys. Like, these people are too powerful, we're too weak, it's not going to work. And they come back with fear. And I happen to think that, you know, fear has its place. Sometimes fear is healthy, but when a story stops at fear is the problem. And that's precisely what happens in this week's parasha. They deliver this message uh, to the people and just panic spreads throughout the camp. And uh, basically, the story ends at fear. And the desert generation becomes the desert generation because of this fear. And they have to wait until a new generation arises because clearly they weren't ready, right? And this is sadly predictable because this generation is one driven by fear. Fear of Egypt, the Egyptians, fear of God, fear of change. So what does that mean for an entire generation to give into fear? And what does fear lead us to communally, individually, generationally? And how many times have various ones of us from different communities heard, <laughs> heard the response when we want to say something, speak our truth? You know, they're just not ready to hear that. Just not ready to hear that. Which is essentially to say... Don't be your true, honest self. Be the version others want you to see. Don't bring back that report from your experience. Tell us what we want to hear, because we're too afraid. We're too afraid to hear your truth. The spies were asked to give an honest account, and that account included fear. And what does it mean for the fate of a generation to hang on the testimony of a few people as the decisors for an entire generation? What kind of pressure does that create? What kind of responsibility does that bring? What potential does that have to activate or silence those upon whom that pressure is being placed? This is Pride Shabbat, and it's a day during which our community of Ikar honors and highlights the experiences of queer folks, but does that mean that every other Shabbat is not a Pride Shabbat? To Ikar's credit, it does an incredible, incredible job at highlighting our experiences and our stories, but with the idea of pressure in mind, as someone who has been up here as a storyteller, and wondered, will my telling my story of, uh, as a gay man make it or break it for someone, for the community, for a generation? If so, what should I say? What should I not say? How much should I edit myself? What level of truth is this community ready for? What consequences, good or bad, hang on the delivery of my words? And that's, that's, a, that's a lot of pressure. That's the kind of pressure that was put on spies, prevented them from telling their truth. And what I want to do here tonight is relieve the pressure for our storytellers. We're honored to have four different people coming up to tell their stories. Alicia, Jocelyn, Stephen, and Tal, who are all here. I saw everyone, so that's, that's good. We're in good shape. Um, and I invite us to be ready to, to hear your story in its fullness and uniqueness and to have the humanity of each person be honored with fullness without the pressure of the sort of big day one of Pride Shabbat that you know, telling, I'm telling my story, right? What is that going to mean? Um, Gamze Torah, this is also Torah, existing every day, being told every day, being lived every day, and we just so happen to be highlighting it today. So each person up here isn't an ambassador to the queer community, right? It's time we sort of do away with that idea. Today is not a day for that. Today is a day for individuals to come up and tell their stories and for us to sit with active curiosity and compassion, to take them in, hear them, and, to, and just continue to foster this community of, of being seen. Um, and I think that this is a model for every day, because many of us queer folks have uh, lived in this sort of cis heteronormative world, right? Sort of felt like spies or flies on the wall in many ways. 
Um, learning a lot of things about the world that people don't know we're necessarily learning. Um, and we want to speak our truths, right? And we don't want the story to end at fear, like I did with the desert generation, like I did with the spies. Fear is a part of the story. Fear is important. Sometimes fear is telling you, you you have to protect yourself. But the story should not stop at fear. And we should be heartened to acknowledge that each of our storytellers tonight has decided, chosen to tell their story, move beyond fear, and come up here and give us some truth. So without further ado, I I can't wait to hear from our storytellers. I know you can't either. So uh, with that, I'd like to introduce Alicia Luzun Heisler and Jocelyn Smith. So Alicia's from Long Island, and yeah, where are you? Where are they? Where are they? Hey, hey, hey. Um, so Alicia's from Long Island, and Jocelyn is from St. Louis, where they both met in college at their uh, college radio station, KWUR. Uh, they've been together for five years. Uh, and this wonderful couple is going to tell a story as a team. So uh, thanks so much for stepping up. I can't wait to hear what you have to say. Um, this is great. Um, it took me like two beta blockers to get here. So. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, as some of you know, um, I was sort of raised Catholic and you're probably like, how did I end up here tonight talking about Judaism and queer identity? Uh, truth is, I'm here because of Alicia and because I love her. And when you love someone, you want to do everything you can to understand what they're going through. I didn't want her to give up anything by being with me, if that makes sense. So, you know, I joined, sorry. So I, so I joined a mood and I started learning with them. And when we moved to LA, I found space for us at JQ and ICAR. And it felt like home, like community. You know, it's crazy since being part of these spaces, we actually get asked why we aren't married yet <laughs> um, pretty frequently. And I guess we've been together a while, but it's like both annoying but also really meaningful because (laughs) because straight people you know our own families would um never ask us that it just i think kind of made me feel more normal in a way that i never thought i would actually desire um so i learned more and tried to incorporate practice into our lives and alicia really fought me on it She said it didn't matter how many Jewish traditions we try to follow, we're not going to please the people in the community that she grew up in, because we're literally gay. Um, And then I realized that if I wanted to explore this, it had to be for myself. Um, You know, Alicia and I also, in addition to working at the radio station, had lit theory together in college, the semester we met. And... I love theory and criticism and like breaking down text and I think that's probably predisposed me to enjoying all the text study in Judaism 
and I'm super into queer commentaries, so obviously I had a hard relate uh, to the Book of Ruth, and it probably resonates because of the queer subtext and it explores conversion, but also helped me dive deep into my own family history when it comes to conversion and this question of what we do at the site of tragedy and what transformation could occur in loss and grief. So in 1959, uh, Pearl, my grandmother, was 28 years old and in love. And that same year, she converted to Catholicism to marry my grandfather, Julius. And according to Julius, his grandfather, my great-great-grandfather, was Kickapoo and converted to Catholicism at one of those like brutal Jesuit boarding schools for indigenous children. In 1966, Pearl had her second daughter, my mother, and the next year, in 1967, she died from a brain tumor. And I think, you know, I'll tell you what happened next. So in 2001, yeah, I was baptized at um, St. Alphonsus Liguori, not as an infant, but like as a six-year-old, and only because I was starting Catholic school. And in retrospect, that's how I knew my mother had doubts. I only went to that school for a year before my mom pulled me out and went to public school. But with all of my mom's baggage around Catholicism, and it's really understandable that she wavered. And then when I was older, like my mom randomly like decided to get rebaptized by evangelical at a random church on like a Saturday after we went to Kohl's. And <laughs> uh it was just like all this inconsistency um, that really, that I really never had like a strong you know, religious identity growing up and not in the way that being Jewish was such a big part of Alicia's life. You know, even though she uh, never wants to go to service. Uh, <laughs> I get it, it's an ethno-religion, it's fine. Um, Anyways, to me, the biggest part of my identity is, you know, being black, and that's where I'm finding my sense of community, too. And, you know, as, like, descendants of enslaved people in this country, we have our own culture that kind of exists, you know, across, like, religion. Like, for instance, like, my friend Sal, he's black, he's Muslim, but we're always served, like, yams, cornbread, greens, and macaroni and cheese on all major holidays. And we call, we both call our aunts auntie, and he knows all the same southern old wives' tales as I do. And I say all this, you know, circling back, I was drawn to the Book of Ruth because it helped me make sense of my mother. My mother was born into this big family tragedy, and just like Ruth in the Bible, it was tragedy that made her search for new faiths, tribes, and modes of understanding. And I can understand her and, and how I myself have found a home in queer Jewish spaces, even though I wasn't raised Jewish. Maybe it's because I can choose Judaism on my own terms, no baggage, as a fully developed adult. I think when there are so many things you don't have a choice in, like when someone you love will die or when you're going to get a bunch of new responsibility all of a sudden, making a new choice entirely of your own restores peace. So, thank you. Uh, all right. So, great start. Okay. So, 
My story also starts and ends with my grandmother, my softa, Giti. She grew up Haredi in Brooklyn. Like me, she is an eldest daughter. When she turned 18, she also sort of ran away, and she actually went to go live on a moshav, and that's where she met my grandfather, Nisim. He wasn't religious, and even worse in her family's eyes, he was Mizrahi. When they married, they became founding members of one of the first Sephardi modern Orthodox synagogues on Long Island. My grandmother wouldn't have picked my grandfather if some part of her didn't want out, but at the same time, this act of loosening, of becoming more modern, it also began this fear in her, a fear rooted in the most basic tenet of Orthodox thinking, in my opinion. It's the fear of dilution, the notion that if Jewish practice changes, it's inherently degraded. So if you stray, then it will encourage your children to stray a little further, and their children will do the same, and so on and so forth, until eventually their children will have no Jewish identity at all. They won't know who they are, and they won't know where they are. And it was sort of true. My mom, also an eldest daughter, always wanted out of orthodoxy too, even modern orthodoxy. But she only got as far as my dad, whose family went to a conservative shul, and later my dad actually became even more orthodox than my mom, so interestingly enough. And she, I think, did this because she inherited that same fear from my grandmother. And so she sent us to the same modern orthodox yeshiva that she grew up going to out of a feeling of obligation. And when I got home from school, I'd tell her how isolated I felt there, and she'd tell me how much she, too, hated yeshiva. And I understand her. Because just like my mother and her mother had always feared, I pushed it a little further. I went to college out of state, and I actually didn't tell anyone there I was Jewish. I never went to Hillel or Chabad, I think because I wanted to be a new person. And that's when I met Jocelyn. I knew I was queer from a very young age, and I was terrified because it was always clear to me from my family, my rabbis, my classmates, that it wasn't acceptable, and that it was a recipe for a miserable life, that we should feel terrible for people like this. It was so hard to come out to my family, I actually did three separate coming out support groups. <laughs> but when it came to my grandmother, I just couldn't do it. I just kept thinking, I'm the thing she most feared, the future she prophesied. We went from being Haredim to modern Orthodox to conservadox, and I skipped reform altogether because my Basharit wasn't Jewish or a man. And all this was running through my head every time I tried to come out to her. And don't get me wrong, I don't feel guilty for being queer. But it hurt. She'd call all the time, lamenting that I wasn't trying hard enough to find a Jewish husband. And I could never tell her the truth, that I'd already found my person. Every time she called, I was scared of being caught in my lies and resented having to lie in the first place, and it made me fear and resent her. This inherited guilt, this fear, this curse that my grandmother thought she brought down on the family passed down from eldest daughter to eldest daughter. It was tearing us apart. And I think Jocelyn is actually the one who lifted this curse. When Jocelyn started exploring Judaism on their own, I was really hesitant, even hostile to the idea, because paradoxically, I had avoided non-Orthodox spaces because my upbringing had prejudiced me against them to view them as watered-down forms of Judaism. It's that fear of dilution. But still, I didn't feel welcome in Orthodox spaces either. And I didn't want to be Orthodox, but felt all this resentment toward my family and people I grew up with for finding a home in Orthodoxy that I could never seem to find. 
And it's a catch-22. It's a value system that would never allow me to be happy. And what made me realize that was watching Jocelyn and how they've approached Judaism with no hang-ups, no resentments, and love it more than I ever did or probably ever will. And that was proof that all these notions I've hung on to about Judaism aren't inherent. It's allowed me to see Judaism as beautiful, the way Jocelyn sees it through their eyes. I was listening to Jocelyn prepare their speech earlier, and they said this thing about feeling bad for what I had to give up to be in this relationship. And it's an awful feeling to see the person you love feel that way. Because it's true, it's been harder to be in some of those orthodox spaces since we got together, but the truth is, I'm not giving up anything. I think if I had gone down the path of marrying an orthodox boy I grew up with, like my mom, I probably would have pushed to be even more modern. I wouldn't have wanted to do traditions that I felt were patriarchal. I was already starting to do that as a teenager. So why, once I was in this queer relationship, did I suddenly feel this need to be so strict with myself and to deny myself opportunities for Jewish community just because they were different from the one I grew up in? And I think it was a form of self-inflicted punishment. It was this guilt, this fear. My grandmother spent much of her life consumed by the same fear. I don't want to long for escape, but spend the rest of my life beating myself up over it. And maybe there are ways for me to find a home in a type of Judaism that looks nothing like the kind that I grew up in. Because the idea that change is bad, it's just an idea. I love my grandmother, but I didn't want to carry this anymore. And I don't want my future children to carry it either. And so when I did come out to my grandmother, I told her I found this amazing person and that I no longer felt uncertain that my kids would have a Jewish identity because my partner was developing a Jewish identity of their own without my prompting and even at times against my own wishes. And when my grandmother told me she still loved me, I was touched because I knew how much it hurt her, but she was setting me free. Thank you both so, so much for being so incredibly vulnerable and willing to be vulnerable. That's really not an easy thing to do. And we're all really better from having heard, heard these stories tonight. Um, there's something really beautiful that both of these stories share. And I love that the book of Ruth was brought up, right? Because Ruth is a character, character, person, character, however you want to look at the story, who, who came to Judaism, who came to Torah on her own terms. Right? And that's what Alicia and Jocelyn both said to us tonight as part of their stories. I, I want to come to this on my own terms. I've got to find my own way. And it makes me think of how something I learned today about, you know, you see this pride, pride flag behind us. It's, it's relatively new. Um, and I'm sure that we've all seen lots and lots of different types of pride flags. There are actually, I think, over 17 different types of pride flags out there. Um, and I feel like each one of those flags is saying, I'm going to find my place, I'm gonna carve out my space, and I'm gonna fly that flag, and it's gonna be part of a group of flags, and I'm gonna come to it on my own, you know? So, uh, thank you both so much for sharing that story. I want to um, introduce our next speaker, Stephen Rubenstein, where are, where are you, Stephen? There you are, hi, Stephen. Um, so, Stephen is from Pennsylvania. Uh, he studied English and comparative literature at Columbia, and just told me he has a PhD, which is amazing. 
I actually pulled most of this off of his Facebook because he's a great man of mystery and I've been trying to track him down. So, um, but luckily, Stephen is here in the flesh to tell you more about himself in person. So with that, Stephen, love to uh, have you come right up. I didn't come out as gay until I was 55 years old. 55. Why did it take so long for me to come out? Uh, blame it partly on my New York Jewish identity. In New York, people express themselves by complaining about the weather, about traffic, about subways, about almost anything. Anticipate the worst and revel in your own misfortune. Complaining is a badge of honor. Uh, that worst-case outlook, however, also affected what I thought being gay was like. I was convinced that being gay would doom me to a lonely and unhappy life, without friends and family, and I would be devastating my wife and forever alienating my children. If I were to come out, misery would be waiting for me. When I finally did come out, despite these fears, I was still sure that I would die alone. Coming out felt like stepping into the void. I couldn't imagine what life would be like for me, except that it would involve ample suffering. At 55, I was persuaded that I was an expired carton of milk, uh, way past my shelf life. I was in for an incredible surprise. When I first set up my profile on the dating apps, a friend had me set my age at 48. One of the first guys I dated, a 30-year-old, started to do the math um, and figured out that I couldn't possibly be 48. Um, I was busted, um, but he wasn't upset. His previous boyfriend had been in his 60s, even older. Um, I quickly realized that so many gay guys love older men. I was a daddy. Uh, An object of desire. My initial experience was heady. My circle of friends and lovers ballooned, and I met men from really diverse backgrounds, Indian, Filipino, South American, all ages and all occupations, from designers to DJs, from doctors to TV stars. I know that this is not the experience of all gay people, but for me, being gay was and is phenomenal. Um, sorry, sorry, straight people. The gays just know how to do things. I started to travel by myself, first to Palm Springs, where a neighbor invited me to a cocktail party and introduced me to his circle of friends. That emboldened me, emboldened me to travel to Mexico City, where I never ate alone and always had a local companion to tour the city. In Cusco, Peru, I spent time with an Incan or Quechuan man who introduced me to local restaurants and taught me about his culture. Then, in 2019, a Joshua Tree resident I was casually dating, let's call him Bert, uh, came to stay with me so that we could go to a dance performance downtown. That afternoon, Bert invited me to a K-Town gallery where he was going to meet up with friends. Strolling through the gallery, I was struck by a handsome man standing in the corner. I was dazzled by his gleaming, uh, heart-melting smile. 
We chatted a bit, and then as we were leaving, I learned he would be coming to the performance that night. And Kathy actually was there with Rose. Um, at the dance performance, I sat between Bert and this new acquaintance, David Rousseff, a dancer, choreographer, and UCLA professor. I was instantly attracted to David. And afterwards, I tracked him down online and asked him out on a date. We went out, hit it off, and started dating. After a few weeks, we realized that Bert had been two-timing both of us. Uh, it was crazy, it was crazy. Unbeknownst to me, Bert was actually on a first date with David. He told David that I was just a friend, and he told me that David was an acquaintance he just happened to run into. Um, neither of us were interested in Bert. David and I fell deeply in love, and last summer we married. In a gorgeous, in a gorgeous, gorgeous ceremony, surrounded by loving friends and family, including my supportive children. Since then, my life has been full of joyful celebrations. Trips around the globe, a warm circle of family and friends cheering us on, the birth of a grandchild. Each night that David and I fall asleep in one another's arms, I think about how fortunate I am, far beyond what I expected for myself, and maybe even far beyond what I deserve. I've never been so grateful for every single day of my life. I realize now that as a Jew, I might complain and imagine the worst, but with nearly every Jewish ritual, I'm also encouraged to be mindful of my blessings, to be thankful for the abundance of joy in our lives. This Pride Shabbat, I wish that all of you, gay and straight, can celebrate just how lucky we all are. And I hope that every gay kid and every 55-year-old knows that things really do get better. That was so great. Oh, my God. I love that, that Stephen, you stepped right into who you wanted to be, who knew you were, and, and said, I, I may have inherited this mantle of fear, this, this inheritance of fear, but I'm, 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 I'm going to toss it away. I'm not going to pass it on to anybody else. I'm going to step into this, and I'm going to own it. And it's so awesome. I love that. And also, I just want to say, um, Bert, if you ever listen to this, how dare you, okay? How dare you? All right. On that note, <laughs> um, I'm going to bring up our, our fourth and final speaker of the night, uh, Tal Kempler. Right. Yeah. Um, so Tal was uh, born and raised in L.A. to an American mom and an Israeli dad. Uh, went to UC Berkeley for undergrad and uh, went to USC for her uh, graduate studies and works as a, a therapist specializing in the treatment of, of uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, and Tal and I have actually known each other for a really long time. We met uh, we were both doing our undergrad at UC Berkeley. And then we, we came back together here and it was amazing. Um, and I think anybody who's met Tal knows that she just like makes you feel so seen and like so appreciated. And um, I was actually in a, in a gay frat at UC Berkeley, which I didn't really fit into. Greek life wasn't for me. It was more just like, oh, a gay frat, that's interesting. And then I kind of got like bullied into finishing um, the pledge process. Because kind of if you, because if you dropped out, you would basically be like ostracized and you wouldn't be able to go to any of the parties. So I was like, all right, I'll just do it. 
And, um, <laughs> and Tall was around, just around, because uh, she was part of QARC, right, and stuff, and, uh, which is uh, queer, I can't remember what it stands for, but Queer Action Resource Center, something like that. Took naps, took naps at the cow on the couches. Um, but when I, whenever Tall was over at the house, I was like, I connect with this person. Um, and I'm just so happy for you and Sasha. Uh, and I want to invite you up to, to tell your story. <clears throat> Hi. <laughs> I'm Tall. Uh, I was not, I didn't plan ahead and take any beta blockers, so if my voice qu like quivers a little, that's why. Uh, Shabbat Shalom, thank you. Thank you for having me here tonight. Um, so growing up queer and fairly secular, like on the fringes of the Hasidic community in the San Fernando Valley was really fun, so fun. Um, <laughs> It's not I'm, not, I'm being serious, because I didn't know I was queer yet, so like the worst thing at the time was they served macaroni with ketchup for lunch, and that was like the worst thing I knew about it. Um, and I would get in trouble also when I would ask my mom, oh, can we like go to McDonald's? And she's like, we're not even out of the building yet, you know? So like I knew I was different. I didn't know how different I was uh, until later. So these trafe-related scoldings were the first of many instances where I learned to separate parts of my identity. And as I got older, the context of these lessons changed, got heavier. Um, I remember coming out to my immediate family and I was met with so much love and support. And I came out in ninth grade and my friends were excited for me. Like it was just like perfect and I was so proud and excited. And then word got out to my extended family and it like blew up in my face. Um, so suddenly there was all this distance between me and all of these people that I had felt really, really close to. I'm really close with my family. Um, they were ashamed of me, and from them I learned my own shame. So I learned quickly to keep the queer part of my identity separate from the Jewish part of my identity. Uh, I was kind of like a chemist, and I had a beaker, and one said, like, Judaism, and it was, like, pretty, and I loved it, and the other one just said, gay, in, like, all caps, and I was like, okay, if one drop gets in from either of these beakers into the other, it's just gonna culminate in a fiery explosion, so I'm just, like, not gonna deal with that. Um, so in college, I embraced, you know, my own metaphorical mechitza, I, like, separated my queer and Jewish selves, and... I closeted myself every Friday night so that I could be Jewish. Um, sometimes I even went on dates with the guys that the rabbi and his wife would set me up with. And in every other space, I proudly identified as gay. So not a good time. Uh, so after graduating, I embraced my queerness wholeheartedly and found myself in various queer spaces and noticed that I was welcomed as this queer person who happened to be Jewish. And I instantly felt like, wow, the opposite has never felt true in any Jewish space. I've never felt welcomed as a Jew who happened to be queer. And I felt so rejected and so I just walked away. And I was like, I'm done with Judaism. I spent the next several years defying everything I had learned. I remember like going to a restaurant on Yom Kippur and this distance that I thought was going to feel so liberating just 
made me sad and I noticed there was like this emptiness. But I didn't want to be a part of a community that didn't accept all of me. So I accepted this as the end of my Jewish journey. That's it. I'm done. Clearly that isn't true since I am here right now speaking at Shabbat at a shul that I'm a dues-paying member of. So it didn't work. Uh, so I mean, for, I really thought it was the end of my Jewish journey. And so for years, I just ensured that these parts of my identity were kept separate. And sometimes it was really hard, but most of the time it just, it was fine and even felt natural. Uh, and then I met Sasha. She is uh, my now wife of three weeks. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> um, And the, that's how I feel about her, too. So uh, we have something in common. Um, for those of you that don't know Sasha, she's pretty gay and very Jewish. So <laughs> needless to say, I was, like, super skeptical. I'm like, who is this person? Um, I was disdainful. I was even probably a little bit rude about her Jewish practice. And I'm like, why would you choose this for yourself? Why would you share your wonderful self with a community that doesn't want you in it, right? Like, why put yourself in danger of everything blowing up in your face? Why would you picnic in a minefield when there's La Cienega Park? Like, it's fine. <laughs> but as the relationship progressed, I got to know her friends, who are now my friends. And to my astonishment, there was an entire community of proudly queer people engaging deeply and wholeheartedly in Judaism. And they quickly embraced me and encouraged me to let those two parts of my identity touch. Uh, and I really wanted to, but I was scared. And I felt a little bit like I do. Do any of you watch Bob Ross? So like you're watching him make his little happy trees and you're like, wow, that's amazing for you. I know that if I try this, it's gonna be a, a disaster. Um, but eventually my yearning for connection outweighed my fear. And so I braced myself for a disastrous explosion. Like I was just ready for everything to fall apart. And I allowed these two biggest parts of my identity to collide and I was right. I was knocked off my feet and stunned by this massive blast. So when I opened my eyes to assess the damage, I actually realized that this wasn't a destructive, dangerous explosion. This was like my personal big bang is colossal burst of creation on an almost incomprehensible scale. I found myself staring at this entirely new universe with millions of twinkling, beautiful possibilities for connection. And so reintegrating Judaism into my life was easy because for the first time ever, I felt like I was part of a community, this community, one where I'm not simply tolerated but embraced for all of who I am, a space where my voice is wanted and my perspective is valued. And I realize now that in order to really experience community on this level, I had to bring my whole self. So to me, that's the power of pride. That's the meaning of pride. Embracing yourself in all of your complexity, right? Allowing myself to explore the many ways that my multicolored different roots intertwined afforded me the opportunity to share myself with others 
And in turn, I get to know what it is to be embraced and held, supported, and loved by a whole community. I'm grateful for every part of my story because I don't think that I would have the mountain of gratitude that I have for every single person here had I not known the depth of the valley of its absence. So pride, even though sometimes a risk, has allowed me to reap such a bountiful reward. So I just want to finish this by thanking my wife, Sasha, for encouraging me to challenge myself and also to Ikar for the opportunity to share my story um, and for being a part of my story. Uh, so thank you, everybody. Shabbat shalom. Uh, yeah. Aww. Sister. Ugh, <laughs> oh, Tal, thank you so much for, for bringing your full self tonight. Um, and it just came to, came to me that the... One of the Hebrew words for report, um, it's also the word for, I think it's also the word for uh, rumor, so, but we're not going to talk about that, um, is shemua, right? And that actually happens to share the same root as the shema, right? The shin, mem, ayin, which we say every day, right? A couple times a day. And it literally means listen. Listen up. There's something that you need to hear. There's something that needs to be said. And I just feel, I think we, we are all feel so privileged that all of our speakers came and they gave their shimwa, they gave their, their honest report of their lives and, and, and we were lucky enough to sit here and, and hear that report, right? With open hearts, open minds, and embracing arms. And I think that that really goes to show just how powerful having a religious community like this can be because there's so many people that don't have this, right? There's so many people whose stories haven't been told there's so many people whose stories won't be told, right? And I, I want to encourage us all to, to not let it end here at Pride Shabbat, not even let it end at, at Pride Month, right? Because these are experiences, this is Torah, this is rich, powerful Torah that if we, if we are lucky enough to have access to it, if we're lucky enough to have someone who's willing to trust us enough to tell us it, we'll will imbue our lives with so much beauty and meaning and light and blue fire. This idea, I love this idea. Um, and uh, fire of every color of the rainbow, really, right here. Um, so I just want to give a big round of applause to our speakers. It's amazing. Um, and with that, uh, Ravi Ross, did you want to say anything? Or should we just, should we, I think, yeah, sure. I just, I just wanted to say, um, Jocelyn and Alicia and Stephen and Tal and Nico, as I was hearing you speak, I thought, oh, that's why we made Ikar. That's why we made this community. And so thank you for being here, all of you, um, because our work in the world is to build a micro version of the world that we actually want every human being to be able to live in. And so thank you for creating the space to manifest these values every single day. And thank you for the courage to stand and 
use your deepest, most truthful uh, voices to help us recognize just how essential it is. And I pray for the day when every single person will be seen and honored for all of the beauty that they bring into this world. And thank you for giving us a tiny glimpse again tonight of just what that beautiful world will look like. Hi, it's Rabbi Brous again. Thank you so much for listening. Want more content like this? I hope you'll subscribe. And please consider making a contribution to Ikar so we can continue to work toward the fulfillment of our mission, to reanimate Jewish life, to embody moral courage, to nurture the spirit, and to work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Visit our website at ikar.org. That's I-K-A-R.org. And I hope to see you, maybe even in person, sometime soon.